Dan Taylor, the 52-year-old son of our brother Bruce and sister Joy, died last Sunday morning near this time from liver cancer. Until the age of 20, Dan was raised to be a typical Arminian Christian, subject to many false doctrines, just like I was. Dan heard the truth of the gospel at the same time as I did, by the grace of God and the cheerful obedience of several preachers. And he believed and was baptized near the same time I was. He was trained to be a pilot by the U.S. Navy and spent his life working as a commercial pilot. His father, Bruce, our brother, was also a pilot and is ill himself, has been convicted about truth and righteousness, and in conversations with him over the last month, he's expressed his great desire for fathers to teach their sons the truth. Every time that we reach a place of death, whether it be a son or whether it be our own, or whether it be someone else's that causes us to reflect upon our lives, we think about the days that have already been spent and how wisely they were spent. We think about how few or many days we may have left. And as Psalm 90 and verse 12 told us, we better apply our hearts to wisdom in the use of those days. I want to summarize in this sermon a few chief aspects of our religion, and I want to provoke the fathers in this church, to teach their sons. Fathers should consider their duty and the content of properly fatherly instruction, of proper fatherly instruction, and sons should crave it and be thankful for what they've received. No one hardly loves a son more than his father. That's the way it should be. But is this true, fathers, that are listening to me? And do you appreciate this, sons? I can promise you one thing, that even an average father loves his son more than your wife will love you. Her love for you is entirely different than what a father has for his son. I hope you'll remember that. Fathers, we must prepare to die as having been good fathers. And we must prepare our sons to follow behind us and to die themselves Not only as good sons, but as good fathers. It's a duty and a privilege to teach sons, and it's something that God ordained from the beginning. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 38, where I'd like to read part of the prayer of King Hezekiah that the Lord heard and saved him from certain death. He was on his sickbed in Isaiah chapter 38. And this event is in the Bible more than once. And when he was told by the prophet Isaiah that he was going to die, he turned his face to the wall and begged God for mercy. Before Isaiah could even leave the king's palace, the Lord told him to turn around and go back in to tell King Hezekiah that he was going to give him 15 more years. And Isaiah 38 is all about that event. I want the 19th verse And I want all of you to love this verse and be convicted by it this day and all those that are hearing this message. Hezekiah is using godly reasoning with the Lord. Great men in the Bible who had great prayers answered would reason with God. And the reasoning here is reasoning that is put forth by David and here by Hezekiah. And it's this reasoning that I've taught you before. That, Lord, if you take me now, how can I praise you in the grave? My body and my tongue will be in the grave. My spirit will be in heaven. It will be praising you, but I will no longer be praising you on earth. That's why we have the 18th verse. The grave cannot praise thee. Death cannot celebrate thee. They that go down into the pit cannot hope for thy truth. I can't hear more truth. I can't teach the truth. I can't praise the truth. If you put my body in the ground. But then we have the 19th verse. The living. The living. He shall praise thee. As I do this day. The father to the children. Shall make known. Thy truth. The father to the children. Shall make known. Thy truth. 
Great God, bless us now to see in Thy Word the duty and the content of the truth we ought to make known to our children. Hear us as we call upon Thee in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Thy only begotten Son, who grew in wisdom before Thee until He was Your beloved Son, perfect in every way, a fit man to be our Savior, God in the flesh, Jehovah Himself on earth, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Hezekiah understood it, and Hezekiah knew that he could appeal to God's inspired and ordained method in order to get 15 more years from God for his life because he was telling the Lord how he would use those years. If you'll allow me to live, I can't praise you in the grave, but I'll praise you if I'm alive. And if you'll keep me alive, I will teach your truth to my sons. The father to the children shall make known thy truth. God has purposed and ordained that by oral instruction and written, if you need to, fathers are to communicate the truth to the next generation. Of course, he's ordained preachers. But he's also ordained fathers. The Old Testament is full of it. God said of Abraham, I know him, that he will command his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. God loved Abraham, and Abraham was the friend of God. And part of that was because Abraham was a good father that communicated the truth to Isaac and Jacob, his son and grandson. Joshua, it is said, told Israel... As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There is another great father that told his children the way it was going to be. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, which is the fifth book of Moses. And let's read a few verses there that are very well known about the duty of fathers to teach their sons. If you read Deuteronomy 6 last night in preparation, you found in the beginning, in the middle, and at the end, that sons are mentioned, meaning children but especially sons, as the objects of instruction by their fathers. Lord, hear us and help us. Verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. We are not polytheistic Hindus or Greeks or Romans. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul And with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house. And when thou walkest by the way. And when thou liest down. And when thou risest up. And more is described there of the Ways that fathers should keep the instruction of God before their sons. David would say in Psalm 34 and verse 11, Come, my children, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, Fathers, bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The nurture is the instruction and education that a man gives his son, and the admonition is the warnings, And the exhortations to his duties. That's what fathers should do for their children. Solomon wrote a book called Proverbs, and it's primarily a book of instruction from himself to his son. And so we have about 20 occurrences in the book of Proverbs of the short phrase, My son, my son, my son. Look at Proverbs chapter 4 and see the wise man's ambition to teach his Son, every man that has taken the pleasure of being with a woman and helping her conceive a son or a daughter had better realize that God has given him something to whom he owes this duty. And the Bible also gives us the content. Many other verses could be raised, and I hope you're going to understand that all the way through. The subject that I am dealing with, if it was dealt with modestly, would take over a year to preach. And I want to do it in an hour. So we've got to be very brief. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 4. Let's get verse 3, where Solomon wrote, I was my father's son. 
speaking of his relationship to his father, King David of Israel. I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. He taught me also. He's appealing to his son to hear his instruction because he listened to his father's instruction because that is God's ordained method of teaching people. A minister gets a few hours or a few minutes a week with your children, but you get 168 hours with them, and it's your duty to teach them. I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. He taught me also and said unto me, Let thine heart retain my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Forget it not. Neither decline from the words of my mouth. So there is a family tradition from David to Solomon to Rehoboam. It didn't work as well as it should have because there was unfaithfulness in the marriages of those men. Thus, the second assembly today. We read in the Bible in Psalm 78 and Joel chapter 1, passages will not turn to, that God lays out before you the hope of four generations in the instruction of your son. If you will instruct your son and your son's sons, the hope is that there can be a perpetuation of the truth through four generations described in both places. Done right, God will bless it. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That is the word of the Lord. That is the general rule. Don't bark at me about exceptions to cover yourself. Yes, I know all about Jacob's children. Yes, I know all about David's children. And I can point to the weaknesses in their lives like you should be able to point to them. And you should be able to point to those in your own. Every one of us stand guilty and condemned before God that we have not been as faithful as we should have been as fathers. And it's a grief to preach and it's a grief to hear it. Understand that, that we're both grieving while you're hearing it and I'm speaking it. I wish I could go back to where they were all in little pajamas standing before me after a bath rather than living in their own homes with another woman and having sons of their own. But you can't turn back the hands of time, and you can't turn back the clock and redo things, but God is able to turn back those hands, and God is able to restore those lost years, and God is able to give us wisdom and grace to make up for it in the days we have left. My brethren, if Hindus can replicate themselves to ten generations through teaching insanity to their children, then surely we can with the truth. You know... A Hindu has been pretty faithful after ten ten generations to have his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren Hindus. Now, if they're able to do that with utter nonsense that has no meaning in this world or any other world, then surely we can do with the truth of God. So let's be full of hope this day. God's and my emphasis on fathers and sons does not reject mothers and daughters. You've all been taught that before. The Bible does say, even in the book of Proverbs, that a young son should not forget the law of his mother. But the primary teacher in the family is the father, and the primary objects of instruction should be future fathers. Every day counts. Hear me. Every child counts. Every event counts. Life is short. They are learning. They are learning every day. Are you in charge of their learning? God chose your father, your grandfather, and he chose your sons, and he chose your sons' sons. So love and teach them. Everything you wish was different about them. If you're frustrated about your sons or your sons' sons, every bit of frustration you have toward them, they have ten times toward you. Everything you wish was different about them, they wish ten things were different about you. So just get over that. That has nothing to do with your duty. What fathers should want and seek is their son's heart. Look at Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 26. Oh, that I could have all of my son's hearts. Oh, that Solomon could have had Rehoboam's heart. Oh, that David could have had Solomon's heart. Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 26. My son, give me thine heart and let thine eyes observe my ways. Notice he doesn't say ears, observe my words. He says eyes, observe my ways. Give me your heart and watch my life. Trust me with your life. I will show you and I will teach you wisdom, truth, and righteousness. Therefore, the duty upon us is to live it and to speak it. But give us your hearts, children. 
Life is short, so we need to apply our hearts for our wisdom, and we need to apply our hearts and our lives for their wisdom. Because we don't know when the Lord is going to cut us off as being a teacher, at which time they will be a pupil subject to some other teacher who may not teach them the truth. Lord, give us that wisdom. What should we teach them? There is so much material available for every one of these points. If you hear a point made that is going to be so brief that you wonder what I meant by it, then ask me, and I'll give you 5 to 20 pages to read of single-space material. But I can't belabor any of these points or we're in deep trouble in this matter. The first thing that we want to teach our children, I'm so glad to be able to walk up to the very young infants and our children and ask them, who made you? And they say, God did. And my heart rejoices and my heart swells and my face glows to know that they're starting out with the first thing that ought to be taught, and that is that God is the source and end of all things. Our God is a sovereign creator. We exist by His pleasure. We exist for His pleasure. He did not consult you or me about any aspect of our lives. He didn't even ask me if I wanted to live knowing that I would have to die. I wish he would have asked me. I speak as a fool when I say that. I want you to think. And I've pointed this thought out to you before. God's greatness is so great, he didn't consult with you about any aspect of your life. He didn't consult with you about how intelligent you were going to be, what kind of parents you had, how tall you would be, how coordinated you would be in sixth grade gym class. He didn't ask you what generation you wanted to be born in, what kind of parents you'd have, or what school you'd go to, whether you would have a propensity to gain weight or not, how wide your hips would be in your bone structure so that you're going to grow to be a wide woman. It doesn't matter. God made all those choices. Oh yes, that will fit the second sermon too, won't it? Yes, it will. God is the source and end of all. Look at Proverbs chapter 16. You're only a few pages away. Verse, a verse that we delayed in, a foundational verse. It's one of the first things that a son ought to be taught. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 4. It answers some of the weightiest questions men have ever asked. The Lord hath made all things for himself. Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. You can ask a question, where did I come from? You came from God's creation. Who created me? The Lord. When that Lord is in all capital letters, L-O-R-D, it means Jehovah God of the Hebrews, described in the Old Testament of a Christian Bible. So that's the answer to two questions right there. Where did I come from? Who made me? And what was I made for? What do I exist for? The glory of God. You exist for your Creator, and it's all right there in the first clause of Proverbs 16.4. The Lord hath made all things for Himself, and that includes you. And it goes on to say, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Because the fourth question men ask is, where did evil come from? Evil came from the government of God. We sinned, and God allowed us to sin, and God planned the entrance of sin into the universe. He never coerced men to sin. He is not the author of sin, but we sinned. God overruled it, and He uses it even in the punishment of wicked men for His own glory. That's where evil comes from. The answer to the four greatest questions. Where did I come from? Is there a Creator? Who is He? And why is there evil in the world? In Proverbs 16.4, God is the source and end of all things. The Bible starts with the words, in the beginning, God. Amen. That's where we should start with all our thinking. Amen. In the beginning, God. They can accuse us of circular reasoning, but I would rather reason in a circle from a starting point of in the beginning, God, than reason from a circle of the marijuana smoke in their lungs. They reason in a circle from an explosion of chaotic gases resulting in swans reproducing and making other swans. Now that is insanity. If you want to reason from a circle from Charles Darwin, go ahead. You're a fool. But we reason in a circle from the God of heaven and His revelation called the Bible. In the beginning, God. God made you without consulting you about any aspect of your life. All things in life are to be done to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, all is to be done to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31. Our worldview and the worldview that we put on our children. We don't ask our children their opinion. We give it to them. 
We give them a godly worldview. This world is God's world. The things that are happening, even in political realms, are under the control and government of God. When you see a child that was born that was born blind, it's by the government of God. And God has a purpose in that blind child. John chapter 9 is given to us in the Bible to describe one of those purposes for a child being born blind. We have a worldview entirely based upon a creator God as he's revealed in the Bible. So we live a faith-based life. A faith-based life means that we turn everything back to God. We pursue our goals in the light of God's wisdom. We respond to adversity the way God tells us to, by dropping to our knees in prayer and begging for help. We respond to prosperity by dropping to our knees or jumping to our feet and thanking God for every blessing that we have, knowing that it came from His good hand. And we prepare for death according to Bible wisdom. We have a worldview that is based on God. We know why there's evil in the world, because we brought it into the world under the government of God, and we thank God that He chose to save some from that evil. Not only is God the sovereign source of all, but He's always right, and He's always just. And we tell our children, no matter what you may see, and no matter how bad it may look, you're judging by appearance, and you can't see all the details that God sees, because God is always right. When he takes a man at 52, or he takes a man at 82, or he takes a man at 22, God is right. God is holy, and God is just, and you will never, with all the wisdom that you may accumulate in life, ever be able to see even a small fraction of the reasons behind God's choices. But we, we submit to one thing for sure, he's always right. The second thing that we need to teach our children, and I believe that most of you have, that black book that you hold in your hands, and most of you carry black-covered Bibles, is the Word of God. And we live by God's revelation, which is given to us in the Bible. We don't live by dreams. We don't live by feelings. We don't live by popes or presidents. We don't live by priests or soothsayers. We live by the Bible. The Bible is God's revelation. It is an entire study on its own to prove that the Bible is inspired from God, and it's easy to prove to a man with a little bit of faith. If you don't have any faith, we don't care about you anyway. Because God doesn't care about you, that's why you're destitute of faith. Faith is a gift from God for those that He loves. If you don't have faith, but you do have faith, I'm going to tell you in a moment, if you don't have faith, it's because you're a sinner that comes from Adam. But let me back up. You do have faith. You have faith in yourself, or you have faith in Charles Darwin, or you have faith in President Barack Obama, or you have faith in the Social Security system, or you have faith in your employer. You've got faith somewhere. We just put ours in the Bible. And even if the Bible weren't true, it's still the best manual for living, because you can ask me any question you wish, and I'll give you an answer from the Bible that makes more sense than any other book you can buy off the shelves of Barnes & Noble, even if it isn't true and there is no God. It's still the best way to live your life. It still says the best things about marriage. It still says the best things about a family. It still says the best things about financial management, working hard on the job, the hope of eternal life. It talks about so many different things in in a good way, even if it wasn't true. But we know it is true. We know it is true. God is knowable by His creation, but the details are found in the Bible. The Bible says in Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. And it goes on that way for six verses to say that God has revealed Himself to every nation, every language, every dialect, that there is a sermon preached every day and every night if a person would just look up and realize that had a Creator. And only a fool would look up. And the Bible says that clearly enough as well. Those aren't my words. Those are God's words. Only a fool would look up and say, there is no Creator. We all got here by an explosion, which we call the Big Bang. For those of you that are listening, we do believe in the Big Bang Theory. But we believe in the Big Bang Theory of creation. God said, let there be light. There was a Big Bang and there was light. To tell you the truth, we don't even know if it needed a bang. All we know is that there was light. According to Genesis chapter 1, the Bible is the revelation of God. That's how we are Christians. We are Bible Christians in that the Bible defines our Christianity. Tradition doesn't define our Christianity. Popes and priests don't define our Christianity. 
Creeds and confessions of faith don't define our Christianity. The church fathers, anti-Nicene or post-Nicene, don't describe our faith or our Christianity. The Word of God does. We could quote a hundred famous men affirming the Bible, but men with faith don't need to hear famous men. In the English world of England and America, there are many men that were famous in the eyes of of our two nations that loved the Word of God and based much of their lives on the Word of God and said that society can only achieve great things if they live according to the Bible and government rules according to the Bible. But those quotes shouldn't be necessary because you should have faith in your heart from God and you should know yourself from reading these pages and the fruit that it is bore in your life that it is the Word of God. The Bible is the absolute and final source of truth. We believe verses like this from the Bible. Psalm 119 and verse 128. Therefore... I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. And I hate every false way. We don't care that our government in Washington, D.C. may be legislating against hate crimes because we know there are things we are supposed to hate. We are supposed to hate anything that is contrary to God's word. God has revealed truth. And anything that is contrary to truth is an error and a lie, and we hate it. According to the words of the sweet harpist of Israel, the sweet psalmist, David himself. The Bible is the absolute and final source of truth. If you disagree with the Bible, it's because there is no light in you. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20 teaches us that. Sons must respect the big black book from birth. Your children should see that big black book, that you open it with reverence that you hold it with care, that you love its words, that you memorize it, that you quote it, that you use it as an answer for everything you read in the newspaper or hear in the news or see on the Internet. And we believe the King James Bible is God's word in English by its faith, by our faith, in its fruit according to God's promises and by the facts that are internal to it that make it superior to its competing, its competing versions and by the fools that sit in judgment against it. God has told us that those who exalt their own education and want to be textual critics with a science that is falsely so-called and rail against the Bible are fools. And He would make them fools. And He would reveal His things to His babes. That those that are learned and go to seminary to be trained as textual critics are ignorant. Education of that sort is a blinding device. To be free from it and to be filled with faith is an enlightening device. And so we believe the King James Bible. We know there is absolute and final authority in the Bible. Look at Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 23. Proverbs 23 and verse 23. By the truth, Solomon told Rehoboam, by the truth and sell it not. By the truth, pay the price. Pay whatever it is necessary for you to get the truth. Seek the truth. Find the truth. Look for the truth. Study for the truth. Listen for the truth. Find true teachers. Buy it. Pay any price necessary to get your hands on the truth. And then don't sell it. Don't give it up for anything. Buy the truth and sell it not. Also, along with truth, buy wisdom, buy instruction, and buy understanding and don't sell them. This is the love that God has for truth. And this is the love God is telling fathers to have for truth. And this is the love for truth that God is telling fathers to communicate to their sons. Because these are the words of Solomon to his son, Rehoboam. And like I said before, maybe I'll not say it again. This includes mothers and daughters. But the emphasis of God's words is fathers and sons. And that's where my emphasis will be. Because I can't improve upon him. And I wouldn't even try. Why would I want to put a mother up equal to a father? There's no such thing. Let the fathers be the instructors and teachers in their homes. My son, the wisdom of God and the truth of the gospel is the most important thing you can gain in this world. Chase the world over, not for pleasure. Chase the world over for the truth. Go to wherever you need to, to find the truth. Son, a rule for life is Romans 3, 4. Let God be true, but every man a liar. Yes, we believe the Bible against anyone. It's only educated men like Pilate that say, what is truth? When Jesus was on trial, 
Pilate asked him, what is truth? Because Jesus said that he came to bear witness of the truth. Pilate had never been in a class that had truth. Pilate had gone to the best universities of his day. All they did was stand there with marijuana smoke in their lungs and ask the students, what do you think, Billy? What do you think, Susie? And the little 18-year-old infants give back an answer worthy of their age and worthy of the smoke in their lungs of total insanity. Amen. What is truth? Pilate had the best education available in his day. Or he wouldn't have been the governor of Judea under the Roman Empire. God rejects the education and wisdom of men and fights against it. He tells us that in 1 Corinthians 1, 19 through 20, chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, that he will make foolish the wisdom of this world. Son, you learn and you follow Elihu in Job chapter 32 that sat around a campfire and listened to the four wisest men in the world. And when they were done talking, he said, I've waited for 30 chapters for you to finish your meanderings and the drivel and the twaddle that came out of your mouths, you falsely accused Job. Now I'm going to give you my opinion. Days should speak. Older men should be wiser. But in this case, it is not true because the inspiration of the Almighty has given me understanding. Every young man should be like Elihu. He is described in Job chapter 32, and his words are found in Job chapters 32 through 37. There is absolute and final truth, and son, you want to get your hands on it. And you want to hold it fast, and you want to believe it, and you want to obey it, you want to keep it, you want to teach it your children, and you want to defend it against all opposition. Creation is fully true. The Bible teaches us that in the beginning. In the beginning, God created. We have a verb. In the beginning, God created. We believe creation. We believe that evolution is a religion of God-haters. Evolution takes far more faith than does creation. If you can believe that we came from a chaotic explosion of gases and the organization and beauty, unity, and reproductive nature of the world came into place from an explosion of chaotic gases, that requires a whole lot more faith than that there is an infinitely intelligent being in heaven that created things according to a wise design and gave them reproductive power. I would like you to tell me how reproduction evolves. Please explain that to me. Because if the first, if the first pair of your species tried to evolve the reproductive power and it failed, tell me about the second pair. We don't have time, but the, the arguments against evolution are legion. You've got to be a blinded fool to believe evolution. We start with creation. It is only God-haters that believe in evolution because they want to get rid of a God that can tell them how they ought to live. Men are incredibly ignorant, especially the more educated they are, because God blinds their minds. And that's why evolution is taught in our universities. But farmers walk their fields and know there's a God because they pray to Him to send the rain. Mocking and ridiculing evolution, along with Picasso, rap, and sodomy, are fun activities of a godly father. And if you can't put the four of those things together, you've got a problem. Sodomy goes right along with evolution. As evolution is taught in our universities, so is sodomy as an, as, as an acceptable way of men expressing their love one to another. And so they say that Picasso was an artist. When I look at a piece of canvas that Picasso got near, I can't see any art. I can see my very young grandchildren... Not my young grandchildren because they can do better. But my very young grandchildren as they color outside the lines and rap. You want to call that music? We live in a mixed up world. And son, you need to seek truth. The foundations are being destroyed. Don't let them be destroyed in your life. We chose death over life in the Garden of Eden. God said, Adam... If you eat the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt surely die in that day that you do so. His wife Eve listened to the lie of the devil about the advantages of eating that fruit. He took that piece of fruit from his wife. He died that day in his love toward God, truth, wisdom, and righteousness. That day he became guilty and ashamed for the first time in his life. That day he was fearful of God in a destructive way and went and hid in the trees of the garden for the first time. He brought death upon our race. 
God had set up that Adam as the representative for our entire race, and we all die because Adam brought death upon us. Romans chapter 5 teaches us this very clearly. We chose death. We chose death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Every day you're dying. Death is clutching at you. How do you know that right now at this minute, there are not mutating cells in your liver? Death is clutching at you. We chose death. We know where death came from. Son, you don't have to be surprised by death or wonder about it. We know where it came from. If the evolutionists were true, son, why didn't we evolve away death? If we could evolve life, reproduction, why couldn't we evolve away death? Because they're liars, son. They don't know where death came from. They know it exists, and they know they can't defeat it, so they ignore it. We know where it came from. We know its cause. Its cause is sin against a holy God in the Garden of Eden where death was the promised punishment. But we also know the cure, son. Are you excited about getting to the cure? Every funeral we go to, son of a believer, we can know that that believer is in heaven living forever and that body itself will be resurrected from the grave and taken to heaven. We chose death, but God chose life. Son, you're a sinner in three ways. Adam sinned and you're accountable for his sin in the Garden of Eden. Romans 5 teaches us that. By one man's disobedience... Many were made sinners. So we believe that. Son, you're a sinner by that. Son, you're a sinner because you have a sinful nature. You have a nature that hates God and loves wickedness. And son, you know that you're a sinner because you sin every day, just like your father does. But God is merciful and forgives us our sins. He changes our sin nature. And He has set up a second Adam to defeat the sin of the first Adam so that we can have eternal life. Son, isn't that good? That's the gospel of the grace of God. The gift of God is eternal life, which He gives to some that He chose of Adam's race. Son, there's a race of angels and there's a race of men. The race of angels is divided in two. There is the devil and his angels that have heaven, that have hell reserved for them. And there are the good angels called the elect angels, called the holy angels that God has reserved for Himself that shall be with Him forever in heaven. Among men, There are wicked men that God leaves in their sins that they freely chose and they freely confirm every day of their lives and that Adam and Eve freely put into a state of condemnation by sinning in the Garden of Eden. And there is another category of men, son, and they are the ones that God chose and put in the Lord Jesus Christ for Him to save them by His sacrifice on the cross of Calvary by suffering death for them. God chose them and put them in Christ and sent Christ to die for them. Salvation is not a, if you will do good, then I will save you, proposition. Salvation is God showing His abundant grace by saving His elect. Think about it, son. God gave the elect to Jesus. God gave Jesus for the elect. Jesus gives eternal life to the elect. That's the gift of God. That's why the Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Son, we reject all notions of works for eternal life. We reject the heresy of free will. Man's will is not free since he ate the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. His will is corrupt. His will is at enmity against God. His will is not subject to the law of God. He cannot understand spiritual things and he considers them foolish. These things are taught in the Bible, son, as you well know, because you've heard them many times before. Places like Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, John chapter 3, John chapter 5, John chapter 6, and so forth. The gift of God is eternal life. Son, salvation is entirely by the choice and grace of a merciful God through Jesus Christ alone. God doesn't save as a remedial measure because He felt sorry for man. God saves for His own glory. So He's done it in such a way that He gets all the glory. There are seven proofs, son, as to why we believe that eternal life is an unconditional gift from God. Man is unable to perform anything pleasing to God. 
That's proof number one. And there's 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 verses of the Bible defending each one of these proofs. First, man is unable to do anything to please God for eternal life. Second, the Bible plainly denies that man's will and works has anything to do with eternal life. Amen. Third, faith and good works are the evidence of eternal life, not conditions for it. Fourth, Jesus Christ saves by himself without any helpers. Fifth, the gospel and its ordinances were never designed to give eternal life. They were designed for those that have eternal life to worship God. Six, the Bible gives examples of those saved without conditions. And seventh, son, you know there's only one doctrine that gives all the glory to God, and it's this doctrine of unconditional salvation. These are the things we believe about eternal life. When we read the Bible, we understand that God has five phases of salvation. That before the world began, God chose those He was going to save and place them by covenant promise in Christ Jesus before the world began. This we call election and predestination. Second, in the fullness of time, we believe this phase of salvation that God sent His Son into the world who was born of a virgin who died on the cross as a substitute to pay the legal price so that sinners could be in heaven in the presence of a holy God that cannot stand sinners. Third, the vital phase of salvation, we believe, is accomplished when a man is born again by the power of the Spirit of God moving and acting and working upon him in a creative act outside of that man's cooperation or request or approval. Because the Bible teaches that as well. Because a man that is born of God is not born of blood. It's not by race, son. Nor is he born by the will of the flesh. It's not by your flesh cooperating with God. Neither is he born by the will of man. It's no one else doing it for you. All these infant infant ordinances and infant rituals that take place in other churches don't get anyone saved. That's right. Because God only can save. But then he sends the gospel to that person that's been elected before the world began, justified on the cross of Calvary, and regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. He sends the gospel to that man. That man hears it, believes it, and rejoices in the truth of the gospel. And there's still one phase of salvation left. And that's when Jesus Christ returns to take that elect, justified, regenerated, converted soul to heaven. Amen. This is what we believe about salvation. The purpose of the gospel, son is not to get men saved to eternal life. It's to educate those men that are saved to eternal life by telling them what God has done for them and what they ought to do for God. Right. We are predestinarian Baptists. That makes us different from other Baptists. Jesus Christ alone is our Savior. He's the high priest of our religion. Amen. We don't have priests in Salt Lake City any more than we have priests in Rome, Italy. Our priest is one, and he sits at the right hand of God, and he's made you a priest. He's made the wife that you're going to marry or have married a priest as well, because he's made us all kings and priests and able to go straight into the presence of God. Amen. These are things that we believe, son. Don't ever forget. Hear me and keep the law of thy father, which comes from the book of God. Hold these things fast. Teach them to your sons. Believe them. Count on them in the hour of your death and defend them against all opposition. This is the truth of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone and the head of our religion. And we want to exalt him in all things. We're Baptists in that we baptize the same way Jesus Christ, the head of our religion, was baptized. Jesus Christ never wore a christening gown. Jesus Christ never went into a Roman Catholic church and had some priest put salt in his mouth. Jesus Christ never went into a Catholic church and had them scare the devil out of the poor little baby and chase him out a side door. Our Lord Jesus Christ was 30 years of age, and he went and was baptized by a Baptist named John the Baptist, who baptized him in the Jordan River. That wild man was girded with leather with a leather girdle, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he's typical of Baptist preachers. Be thankful. There's only one right mode of baptism, and it's burial and resurrection in water. Their baptisms don't show a picture of anything except to irritate a little baby. We baptize by a burial and a resurrection because Jesus was buried and rose again, and because our bodies are going to be raised again 
if they're buried in a cemetery. And there's only one right person that should get baptized. And that's someone old enough that believes the gospel and has a conscience that wants to answer God for what he's done for them. Son, the Bible teaches these things a hundred different ways. Right. But 90% of Christians fail even on the doctrine of baptism. Son, the church is the most important organization in the earth. It's not the United States Congress. It's not the United Nations. It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's called the temple of God in the Bible. It's called the house of God. Jesus said he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. You make sure that you're part of a local church of Jesus Christ, that you love it, you serve it, and you participate in it with all your might. There are so many verses that describe it, son. The Bible warns in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17 that those saints that were gathered together at Corinth were the body of Christ, meaning Jesus dwelt among them because they were a church. They were the temple of God. And he calls it that there. And he said, if any man defile the temple of God, him will God destroy. Son, be careful how you deal with the house of God. You assemble and you participate in a church every opportunity that you possibly can. You make it very important in your life. Wise men understand that when they see the true church of Jesus Christ and understand that that is God's temple, they will sell everything they have to lay hold of that field where they found that valuable thing. They will sell everything they have to buy that pearl of great price to be part of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and a member of His church. Son, don't you ever feel bad that you're a member of a small Baptist church that holds the truth of God's Word and believes these things because you need to go to Hebrews chapter 12 and remember that you're part of a megachurch. You're part of a megachurch that's larger than all the megachurches of this world put together. Because the Bible tells us in Hebrews 12 that the church that is in heaven, and it's called a church up there because the word church means congregation, son. Don't let Roman Catholics or Presbyterians lie to you about the meaning of that word. It means a congregation. And there's a congregation in heaven. Amen. It's the spirits of just men made perfect. That's where all the elect that have died before you have gone. And there's an innumerable company of angels. That means the church is so big you can't count all the members. And the book of life is the membership role. And Jesus is there. And it's a wonderful place. And it's called the real Zion. We're not looking for a Zion in Utah. And we're certainly not looking for a Zion in the Middle East. We're looking for a Zion in heaven. Son, find a church and love it and serve it. And never disrupt it because it says God hates those who sow discord among brethren. Son, remember that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. You teach your sons and your daughters, my fathers, that their body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Therefore, they should consider every moral matter as to what it would do, whether it would offend or whether it would please the Holy Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 tell us, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, that ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, And in your spirit, which are God's, because he owns it all. Son, we live in the perilous times of the last days. That means that there's a whole lot of Christians that don't believe these things anymore. There's a whole lot of Christians that are lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. You can't join with them. You can't be part of them. You can't agree with them. You've got to separate from them. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to chapter 4 and verse 4, describes in a 21-verse lesson these perilous times. Son, it's hard in the year 2009 to be a Christian. Because there's a lot of Christians that say that they're Christians, but they don't live by the Bible. They don't believe these things. We need to teach our children that. God has chosen us in His providence... And it should rejoice our hearts that He counts us worthy of living in the perilous times of the last days. Because He believes and He has charged us to hold fast in these times when men will no longer endure sound doctrine. Son, that's what it says in 2 Timothy 4, 3. Men will no longer endure sound doctrine, but they'll heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They want to be scratched. They want the lust of their flesh to be satisfied when they go to church. 
We don't ever want to satisfy the flesh when someone comes to church. We only want to satisfy the spirit, son. We are not going to have part with them. We must separate from them. We must withdraw from every brother that walketh disorderly. It is our duty to live a separated life. Remember these things. Son, God may be good to the entire creation by sending His Son in His reign, but that doesn't prove He loves them. That just proves that He's good even to His enemies because He does that so that you'd have an example to follow in being kind to your enemies. Son, if there's one thing that you should learn in life, it's to fear God. And to fear God is to want to please Him with your life so that you keep His commandments, so that you delight in Him, so that you honor Him, and you would never do anything that would displease Him. That's what it means to fear God in a good way. Solomon, after analyzing all of life, brought it to this simple conclusion, son. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. The wisest man, observing all of life, comes to this conclusion about life. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Ecclesiastes 12:13. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Amen. Son, that's where you want to rest your life. That's what you want to set as your goal, and that's what you want to teach your children. Wisdom starts with that premise of right thinking, and the blessings of God that are attached to the fear of the Lord are great and many. And the Bible describes them. If you'll fear the Lord, God is going to be with you all the days of your life. The love of God is His first commandment. Son, love the Lord thy God. Delight in Him. Don't delight in riches, strength, or learning. Don't delight in your accomplishments professionally or financially. Your accomplishments academically or athletically. Delight and glory in the fact that you know the great God of heaven. He should be your portion. Acquaint yourself with Him. And be at peace, and good will come to thee. But son, there's more than that. I want to leave you in this world to be a servant of others. And you make sure you love your neighbor. The greatest man, according to Jesus Christ, who was the greatest and is the greatest man, the man Christ Jesus, he said that a servant is the greatest. Don't want to be a chief. Desire to be a servant. Get down and help others. Think outside yourself. Don't think and worry about your things. Think and worry about the things of others. Be a servant. Learn the expression that makes people joyful. Jesus, others, and you. J-O-Y. Jesus, others, and you. Son, if you ever get that out of order, it will disrupt your life, you will not please God, and you'll be worthless in the kingdom of heaven. Make sure that you're third. God is first, others are second, and you're third. The love of neighbor is the second commandment, and it summarizes the whole will of God. It's all wrapped up in those words of loving your neighbor as yourself. Don't listen to this world, son, when they tell you that you need to learn to love yourself. You already love yourself more than enough. You need to learn others, you need to learn to love others as much as you love yourself. Don't forget that there's a spirit being behind this. There's a war for your soul, son, by the devil himself. And Ephesians chapter 6 tells you to put on spiritual armor and to stand and to resist the devil and he will flee from you. The world doesn't believe the devil. They mock the devil by describing some little red creature with forked ears and a forked tongue and a pitchfork and a long tail. And he's usually dancing around some black cauldron where there's a witch. The devil comes as an angel of light. The devil comes as a preacher. The devil comes as a Christian. The devil comes as a tele-evangelist. Son, don't listen. Stand firm against them. We're in a spiritual war. Son, the world worries about weapons of mass destruction, but the weapon of mass destruction is the devil and sin. They worry about terrorists, but it's the terror of the Lord they ought to fear. And it's the terror of being turned over to Satan they ought to fear. The most powerful thing you can ever do, son, is to pray. You can accomplish more things by prayer than anything else you will ever do, son. Pray. Pray. When you're told to resist the devil by putting on all the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, it tells you the activity that you ought to be engaged in is prayer. Because that's how you can defeat the devil. Son, the Bible is the most practical guide for your life you can ever have. You don't need your dad's diary. You don't need Benjamin Franklin's sayings. You need the Word of God. It's got phenomenal wisdom in it. It can help you in every area of life. Son, the book of Proverbs will tell you what women to avoid, 
what women not to marry and what woman to marry and what kind of a life to have with that woman you marry. The rest of the Bible will tell you to love her, how to love her, and how to maximize that love. Son, the book of Proverbs was written for you. It was written for young men. Hear me, sons, and hear me, fathers. Proverbs deals with everything from political science to risk management, from dealing with angry authorities to avoiding business scams, from the torment of an odious woman to getting ahead in your profession, from money management to the dangers of alcohol, from the profit of giving to the poverty of hoarding, from the danger of pride to true friendship, from the value of graciousness to the danger of peer pressure, from the quantity, quality, and speed of speech to the care of the poor and the care of animals. From dealing with fools to dealing with salesmen. From righteous buying to righteous selling. From the importance of saving to the value of a great reputation. From fear and procrastination to rebuke as an act of love. And 1,000 other topics. You have a great library, son. Pull down the book of Proverbs from the shelf from time to time. And also you can take a look in Ecclesiastes where you can learn that all is vanity and vexation of spirit. You can learn that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. But yet you are to do everything with your might. You can learn the vanity of riches, political science and rules for rulers, the place of pleasure in your life, the vanity of youth, and the details and remedy of old age. And you know what that is? Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. That's the remedy for old age. Son, the future is terrible. Jesus Christ is coming back to judge the quick and the dead. When it says the quick and the dead in your Bible, son, it means those that are living and those that have already died. Jesus Christ is coming back to judge all of them. He is bringing his mighty angels in flaming fire to wreak vengeance on all them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The wicked will be resurrected from death to hear horrifying words of eternal damnation. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Horrifying words, son. The future is terrible for the wicked. But it's not terrible for you. The future is wonderful. For Jesus Christ is coming back to earth to raise his elect and those that believed in him from their graves and to take them to heaven with glorified bodies to live with him forever. You're going to meet the Lord in the air soon, son. And you're going to meet me with the Lord in the air, son. The Lord is going to resurrect us together to a great family reunion in heaven. The American spiritual swing low, sweet chariot is a true story, son, that God sends his angels with a chariot to gather the spirits and souls of his elect and to carry them into heaven, over Jordan, into the promised land, the real promised land, heaven. The best perspective you can have for life is Christ's soon coming. The Bible ends with the impassioned plea of the Apostle John for Jesus to return quickly. The Bible's the only true history of earth and man. Its prophecies are also true, son. You can count on every one of them. The universe as we know it is a drama for God's glory. This whole creation is groaning in travail and pain together until now. Trees lose their leaves, animals kill and eat each other, animals and birds die, fish die, everyone dies because death is a curse upon the entire creation. But Jesus Christ is coming back. We know where it came from and we know its cure. The entire universe is a drama for the glory of God. And son, you and I and our family, all those that believe, were chosen to be stars in that drama. Praise the God of heaven. Praise the God of heaven. Every believer that truly believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, and by that shows evidence that they are God's elect, are part of the drama, because they are going to be shown to the universe to be the children of God. The whole earth is waiting for the manifestation of the children of God. Romans chapter 8. Son, your future is magnificent. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and obey Him. Death is unavoidable, but death is manageable by salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Son, live life one day at a time. For a successful life is a string of successful days that have been given to the Lord. Today is the first day of the rest of your life, son. You will die 
you will die based on how you live today. Because if you don't hear me today, and if you don't hear God's Word today, there's no reason to think that there's any other message I could preach or any other passage that you could read that would get your attention more than today. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. You will die based on the amount of faith that you have today. Therefore, I charge you and I exhort you to love the God of heaven, to love the God of the Bible, and to read the Bible of the God of heaven, to learn what His will is for your life and to keep it. The assurance of eternal life is by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. The rest of the world ignores Him, except when they write the date in their checkbooks. When they write the date in their checkbooks, they admit by the year 2009 that there was a dividing of time based on Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But they give Him no place in their lives. Give Him a place in your life. Believe on Him. Keep His commandments. The Bible says there's no doubt you'll never fall, but you'll receive an abundant entrance into the kingdom of heaven. My son, I hope that you'll go to the grave with God gratefully receiving you and saints grieving at the loss of a great brother in the kingdom of heaven. A good name with God and a good name with men is greater than any estate or office that you can possibly leave behind. Take that good name with you. Let it be said that you loved God more than all men and that you were a tree of life to all men. Let that be said about you. Son, death is only departure from this life to a better life. With the angels in heaven and with the Lord Jesus Christ and with the spirits of just men made perfect and with God Himself, our living Lord Jesus Christ has already conquered death and He lives forever at God's right hand and He's coming for us soon. Your future is wonderful. Don't you worry about death. It's the only way you can get rid of your body. And as I preached to you recently about the resurrection of the dead, you have to plant a seed before you get the crop. You have to plant a seed before you get the new plant. And when your body is put in the ground, that's a necessary step in order for you to have a glorified body in heaven forever. Son, the promises of God are wonderful. John 14 says, Jesus told his apostles just before he died, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. If these things were not true, I would have told you so. But they are true, and I'm telling you that they're true. And that same Lord Jesus Christ closed out the book of Revelation by saying, Surely I come quickly. Every one of you will make one of three choices right now and by the way you conduct yourself the rest of this day. I do not believe the Bible. God does not exist or is not as described in the Bible. I'm going to live for myself and for sin. Many make that choice. Make that choice. If you make that choice, go and do anything that you feel like without regard to God or men. Because the Bible isn't true according to your assumption of faith. There are others that will say, I do believe the Bible. God does exist as described there, and I'm going to live according to His wisdom in this life. I will do whatever the Bible says. What should I do next, preacher? I tell you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to find a church that preaches the Bible about the Lord Jesus Christ and to keep the commandments of God. There are others that will say, I do believe the Bible. God does exist as you have described Him and as the Bible describes, but I love myself too much to live for Him. This is 99% of those that claim the name of Christ. These are carnal Christians. These are worldly Christians. These are lukewarm Christians that Jesus says He will spew out of His mouth. Do not be that hypocrite. Do not ever be that hypocrite. I have told you the truth, son. This is the truth of God's Word. Believe that there is a God that is described in the Bible. Believe the Bible is that God's Word and live like it. Every point I've made, son, can be backed up with much more material. Every father and grandfather should consider the importance of teaching his sons what truly matters. Every son should crave such instruction from his father, should want to be around his father to hear as much as his father can impart to him and consider it and to retain it for his life.
This is our duty, brethren. This is our duty, sisters. As mothers, you have the same duty, though God puts the emphasis upon the husband and the father, to teach our children those holy things that are contained in his word. We have been given a heritage that is beyond description and beyond belief. We have been saved with an everlasting salvation, and all these things that the world does not know are called the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The reason the world does not know them is because the natural man cannot understand them and considers them foolish, but they've been revealed to us. Lay hold of them. Keep them diligently with all thy might. Hold them fast and do not let them go. Buy the truth and sell it not. Teach it to your children. Keep your own heart diligently. Let us defend these things all the days of our lives that we and our sons can approach that day of our death with confidence knowing that we have lived the lives that God expected us to live, holding fast to the truth of His Word, and He will receive us into everlasting righteousness, peace, rest, and glory. Praise His great and glorious name. Amen.